Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of FinTech X. Our today's guest is Ms. Jaya Vaidyanathan, CEO at BCT Digital. Jaya comes with over two decades of experience, is one of the few women leaders in the banking and technology space in India. Prior to joining BCT Digital, Jaya was associated with companies like Accenture, HCL, Standard Charter Bank, spearheading functions like financial services, mergers and acquisition, risk management, and outsourcing advisory and technology. Welcome, Jaya. Thank you, Madhu. It's a pleasure to be on the show. All right, Jaya, let's start. Um, you know, talking about BCT Digital, it being a pioneer in what it does today, it started, uh, you know, I think it's a 10-year, 15-year journey for you. So the question is, is necessity the mother of invention? And if it is true in your context, uh, then, you know, if you could help us elaborate that story and, you know, how you you started, you know, probably the gaps in the market, NPA crisis, et cetera, if you can just, you know, help us understand that journey and how exciting or, uh, you know, difficult was it for you? Uh, it's always exciting and difficulties are part of the journey. So I wouldn't call that uh, difficulties, but probably word as challenges. We started eight years ago with a kernel of an idea. It was more to look at what ails uh, the Indian banking system. And at that time, the biggest problem that banking industry was facing was the raising amount of non-performing assets that were draining good, the good money. And it was also in terms of what it needed in terms of custodians of trust. Banks being the custodians of trust, you don't give your money even to your neighbor. You do deposit in a bank. And when that becomes a non-performing asset, that is a macroeconomic impact in terms of trust in the banking system at large. So it was more about looking at it with that lens and looking at what we can do in India for India, taking into account the unique cultural um, associations with non-performing assets. What I mean by this is uh, non-performing assets happen because of two reasons. One is your willingness to pay and the second is the ability to pay. So the ability to pay is kind of like common. It's with stress in the system. It's a global problem. It's also an Indian problem. But the willingness to pay, which is the cause of huge scams, it was at the era when you heard every time you opened a newspaper, you saw that uh, you had a scandal. There was a Nirav Modi case. There was a Vijay Malia case. So you talked about you know the rich kind of like some of the people kind of walking away with money. Whereas the impact of that was felt at the grassroots level. So with that, we said, what can we do to address the unique issues around willingness to pay, which was the cause of loan frauds, mm -hmm. and then look at what can we do taking into account the unique differences, cultural differences in India, which accounted for the willingness to pay aspect of it. And how do we bridge that gap with designing a product, a compliance product, risk management product for India uh, from India because you can't take a global product and adopt it for adapted for this particular situation and then say it has got to work and check on these triggers or stress in the system. So that was the kernel of an idea about making a product in India to address the unique challenges of the Indian banking system. Interesting. So so I'm assuming there was never a Eureka moment you know, for the product, it was more of a journey, you know, as you went through your learnings and, you know, 
the economy economic scenario as well i think it was not just about my journey or the bct digital journey it was a journey that involved a lot of people coming on to the platform for instance rbi our regulator right they looked at it with the lens of this is a very interesting proposition how do you look at a preventive lens on non performing assets rather than a forensic lens that was the genesis of the idea now you can't do all of this without the regulatory kind of body kind of stepping in and saying this is a great idea we need to have the banks willing to sign on to it and say there is an accountability in the system then we need to look at it from a technic technology point of side and also look at how do you create a product for this ecosystem where all of these parties come together shake hands and say that's a great thing to do which is what happened so when we started the journey rbi said 42 triggers hey that could be a great kind of indicator of what happens in the system and today it is moved from 42 alerts to many hundreds of alerts to looking at rbi now looking at a real time uh you know transaction lens on the loan rather than looking at it from a uh, again from a forensic perspective so the regulators have come a long way the banks have come a long way the product companies or the fintechs have come a long way together we've made this happen interesting so you mentioned you know something like preventive versus forensic can you give us a little insight of what that could mean so two things i would like you to elaborate what is that is what is what does an npa mean for a common man today how are they impacted right if something goes wrong what could possibly go wrong for them and then you know in that context if you can elaborate between the preventive and the forensic side of things so imagine like as as you know you and i are in fact the common man right so when you open a paper and you see that for you as a person when you ask for a home loan you you said it's 8.5% and now with interest rates rising it's hitting 10% um so you open that and people say you you have to submit reams and reams of documentation to get a loan and then the interest rates keep going and you see that there is an issue with your monthly flow and all of that and there is a lot of scrutiny for a common man to get a loan and on the other hand you open the paper and you see that vijay malyas or nirav modi's or there is multiple other people that are able to walk away with millions and millions with little or no recourse mm -hmm. so for every 100 rupee and they say that i am a senior citizen right i am i have all my hard earned money over the years that is stuck that is case 3 so there are multiple parties here a common man says it's very hard to get a loan or then a senior citizen deposits his lifetime earnings say it is like you know 50 lakhs of lifetime earnings in the bank and you're giving it to the bank and you're saying for every 50 lakhs that i deposit i'm going to get a fixed amount of interest and that's how i'm going to live the rest of my life so you give it to a bank thinking the banks are going to safeguard your assets so but what if somebody told you that the number amount of money you're depositing in a bank is not completely what the bank is utilizing for generating returns on investment 10% of that becomes a non performing asset and on one hand while it's so hard for a common man to get a loan somebody is able to walk away with millions so that is the disparity between uh, what happens to the rich and to the common man right would it doesn't it make your blood boil yeah. it does i mean as a common person it makes me feel that way 
I said, why is this disparate? Why, when, why am I getting all these documentation and I am supposed to pay every penny or there's somebody standing outside my door to collect? Whereas somebody that's already rich doesn't have those things. So that is an issue from a common man's lens perspective. Now let's look at it from a bank's perspective. Let's look at it from a government perspective. So what happens if the bank says I took 100 rupees and for every 100 rupee I am now only I can only I only have 85. I took 100 from public people, but I, I have only 85 rupees left. Who's going to fill the gap of 15 rupees? So far, the government has been kind of stepping in and saving the public sector banks, right? So it is like it is your tax money that goes into the government, which goes indirectly into kind of feeding these coffers. So that is another way that a common man is also affected. Your hard-earned money, instead of going for a development cost, it's going to kind of shore up banks that have lost the money in the process. So there are multiple ways yeah. which why you should be concerned about this. So from a non-performing asset means that it is not kind of like it's gone somewhere, it's gone, you know, out of the system. It could be because of a fraud. It could be because, you know, the performance of the bank, you know, in terms of like it lent to certain people and the recovery was not possible. So there are multiple ways to look at it. Got it. Interesting. I mean, it sounds both complex and scary and also easy, uh, you know, to some extent. Mm -hmm. that, okay. At least in India, I think we still have regulators probably, you know, who will step in and, uh, you know, take care of the common man. But you know, how how long do you think that could happen? Say, for example, in other very developed nations, is the scene very different than what it is here? And how do you see that landscape changing for us? See, in terms of uh, there are again, I explained a non-performing asset. It can have, it can come due to two reasons. One is the willingness to pay, and second, the ability to pay. The ability to pay means there's stress in the books, as in your businesses are not doing well. And therefore, you're not able to pay. That is a genuine stress in the system. It's not a fraud. That is a universal problem. You can lend to a company and they can be stressed. There could be macro indicators. And therefore, they're not able to pay. And that is a common condition. So what I mean is the willingness to pay. The loan frauds are more in certain countries than the other. All right. Um, so now, you know, moving on from what the issue actually is from for you to you know start the you know start it as an idea and make it into a global product that it is today you know can you run us through the journey you know we would like to focus more on probably the challenges that you faced uh, and if you could break it down into challenges that was more business challenge and the other is more environmental challenge yeah, so this is uh, the idea was we could have done a million things when we started to do because we wanted to focus on the banking system. But we chose on the risk and compliance space because we felt that there was a lot more that could be done uh, from that lens here and then take it globally and roll out. Mm -hmm. So with that view in mind, we did focus on risk and compliance. Now, if you ask what were the good and the bad learnings when we started, there was this is not a mandatory requirement. It was a good to have. RBI said it's a guideline, which essentially meant banks were mulling over it. They said, hey, it's a good thing. But unless you actually say it's a compliance requirement and you must do it, uh, the adoption in terms of even though it was a good, good thing to do, the adoption was not as much as we decided to have. So we said it's a great idea. We will look at it from a 
preventive perspective, not from a forensic perspective. Regulators were excited about it. But uh, we started by actually publishing a report on what ails Indian banks. And with that view in mind, it was inaugurated. It was kind of like, you know, one of those papers that was often quoted. And uh, it was established that NPAs are going to be the biggest thing. So there was no doubt about it. And there is also consensus in the system that we need to look at it from a preventive perspective. But the actual challenge on the ground was that if it's not a compliance requirement, why are we doing it now? Let's watch some of the banks do it. And if it works for them, let's adopt it. Are we spending money on something that's not yet a compliance requirement? So that was the biggest challenge. So our first um, bank that actually went in for early warning system was the erstwhile Andhra Bank. And uh, they had come up with an RFP. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, you know, we won that RFP. And, uh, you know, that was the first uh, client. But then again, most banks were waiting for that to become kind of like a mandate. And uh, interestingly, RBI said, if, uh, you know, PCA bank, which is banks under stress, they have to have an early warning system in place. Otherwise, government wouldn't kind of like go ahead and fund it. That was a big leap step uh, for us. Because when that happened, then all banks kind of like said, oh, we are PCA banks, let's go with an early warning system. And then the adoption kind of increased. When the the other banks, which were not the PCA banks, but they also kind of saw the benefits that PCA banks were getting from having a place, then this makes sense. Now, let me rewind a little bit, Madhu, to explain to you what early warning system really means. Let's say that somebody says, you know, let's say I had a heart attack today. Then I didn't just suddenly go from being a perfectly healthy person to having a heart attack today, right? There could have been a lot of uh, signals in my body which said, you know, I was feeling breathless. Uh, when I did a blood test, my cholesterol was very high. I could or could not have had, uh, you know, diabetes or I could have had high blood pressure. I could have had a number of early signals that said, you know what, Jaya, you better exercise now. You better lose that weight. You better do a lot of things before you get, you know, some major impact on your system. It can or cannot happen, or it could be a perfectly healthy person had a heart attack. We don't know that. But then your body normally gives you early signals to say there are certain things that are going to, you watch out for it. It is the same thing translated to your loan book. So it basically says you did not go from a great customer to a really bad customer overnight. There is a sign of incipient stress in your book. Monitor that, watch that, before that actually results in something more fatal. So that is kind of like where this whole thing is going. So I'm demystifying some of these words. Got it. Interesting. So so as as an organization, you know, you know, from idea to creating a product, to me it sounds like it is, uh, you know, there is a lot of dependency on, you know, say triggers or external factors, or say regulators. Uh, so maybe the question is for companies who are, you know, probably in similar line of businesses where you do not have complete control. Say, for example, you, you create a product and you sell it, right? So you have so much autonomy in doing that. Yours is obviously the opposite, right? The, the dependency on too many factors. How do you then grow about, go about building and growing that business? How does funding come into the scheme? You know, how do, say, investors look at it? Or how do you get users or you have revenue or whatever the other parameters as a business that you might look at? So what is that journey? And how do you differentiate that between different kinds of organizations 
one is you know a product which does not have dependency on the external factors versus yours see i think every product in the world would have dependency on some sort of external factors the external fact may vary from company to company but the fact is that there is always a dependency because your product is only a successful product when somebody buys it that somebody buying it is a customer called a customer but then there are propelling factors for the customer to build either there is a demand or you create the demand are you if you're a market maker you make the market you create that demand so now if you look at it should this product have not exist existed what would have happened a lot of the global companies build products for a risk and compliance kind of a broader landscape but it does not address the specific situation so but we figure out what are these burning triggers in the market what are the white spaces how do you kind of create a product for those white spaces which you which you sure there is a huge niche in the market now if you look at it at that time npas npas were upwards of 10% now if it something is upwards of 10% which is like you look at an asset size of say 50 billion in a bank you're looking at 5 billion of assets per bank at stake so now even if you can bring bring the one down an npa with a product by 1% it's 500 million right return back to the economy so these are huge impact items that anybody will say it's a no brainer right you need to have this product because it's something that it's a huge return in terms of the balance sheet it's a huge return public money so this is actually a no brainer when you can create an idea that is so compelling that it is it is a need of the market at that hour and it's something that's so compelling that there is a significant no brainer kind of a situation in terms of economic impact that's a straight shot winner second is also to see look at the competition and look at who else will be in that market is it something that you look at the study and say what is the onus of say a scandinavian company to create a product designed in india for an indian situation which may not apply to the globe the answer is there is very little scope for indian or a scandinavian company or a british company to kind of say oh india has this problem and this is going to be a significant marketplace so let's do a road map of a product that addresses this space the answer it's probably not going to be doing it because that's not a significant monetary advantage for them to do that so i'm starting in a place where hey there is a clearly defined need or a not just a need a compelling need second is to like kind of say there are not many entrants in the market who would get into the space because it's a defined space and second it is something that's going to grow what happens to india today is going to happen to another country tomorrow so it's not that it's kind of like it's an isolated need which is not going to happen to anybody it's a question of where are you starting and where is your road map to end so i think that is the second component of this third is also more in terms of if i build this product is the segment compelling enough that i can have a significant revenue momentum coming from this marketplace the answer was yes fourth is in terms of the global connect So when we looked at other markets, for instance, we also felt that other regulators, like for instance the APRA, the Australian uh, uh, regulators, they were all talking about a need for such a product. It was again not a mandate, but it was a compelling need. Then in Europe, there were guidelines that were talking about this is going to be a problem. And in fact, COVID accelerated non-performing assets globally. 
and therefore the impact in terms of regulatory compliance from global regulatory uh, banks right regulators that also became a propelling need so it's more about seeing the strategic advantage of creating something looking at the market looking at barriers to entry and then looking at is there a significant momentum that's going to happen that will continue to propel this product to different markets and that's how this happened Got it. Yeah, obviously, look at the global TAM. We will look at the SAM, the SOM, because these are some things that investors will definitely look at. What is an achievable market? Uh, what is an obtainable market? All of that. So we did put in significant amount of time in the strategy of it. No, and 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 was the journey of uh, you know closing funding smoother and faster because obviously you're a category creator and you know niche of your kind when you would have started. Was so interestingly, that's a great question. Interestingly, we were profitable from year one because it was such a unique product. So we didn't have a need early on to kind of take on money to make the company float. Obviously, the investors come in from a perspective of looking at scaling the market, but not just to run the business. Right. right. Interesting. So you you touched upon COVID, and you know that that is something that we try and uh, bring in perspective from all businesses. So how was uh the journey before covid and post covid like i said pre covid again banks were all there was a compelling guideline like i said because uh, you know there's a mandate that of uh, you know all uh, pca banks have to have a early warning system in place so that something came in brought down brought in further expansion in our business because there were more stressed assets on this particular case we also diversified into other products for instance what is the quantifiable impact of covid in terms of um, uh, you know modeling scenario analysis looking at models looking at quantitative impact in terms of covid itself uh, modeling parameters such as if a vaccine is uh, administered in abc country at this time what is the supply chain uh, impact going to be because know that supply chain was the biggest constraint during covid right it was more about you know you everything from availability of a car to availability of spare parts to availability of everything was impacted which caused a huge impact in businesses around the world so we diversified into models where we could do scenario analysis on these type of things and then we created a model risk uh, product which would just do quantifiable impact like we can tell you if a vaccine comes to see country at this particular time it's rolled out in this time then the effect of uh, you know the impact on a specific business will be much less than something else so putting this method or science to all of this was something that we diversified into post covid again it accelerated growth into other non linear areas then post when we emerged out of covid there were other macro economic issues there was a war between russia and ukraine that again accelerated supply chain risks of different kinds there was a lot more thrust on climate risk post what happened in terms of uh, you know the climate risk conference mm -hmm. so there were a lot of guidelines that came out and esg was a big uh, factor so what we started with early warning system and the banking world in terms of model risk management grc governance risk and compliance has now taken also we've diversified into other lines of business around risk and compliance which is more into like esg area sustainability 
what we do in terms of those areas. So a complete acceleration. The kernel remains risk and compliance, but it's across different platforms that we've been able to morph into. Wow, very, very, very interesting. I think, you know, us coming from, you know, similar background, uh, you know, getting insights so deep, uh, you know, is, is extremely helpful and very interesting. My next question is probably, you know, it's a little personal in terms of how do you see, you know, how has your entrepreneurial journey being, you know, especially being a woman in an industry which is pretty much male dominated, even today, I would like to say it is pretty much a male dominated industry. How do you think your journey started versus where it is now and where do you see it going? This is more for, you know, our aspiring listeners who want to you know get into an industry similar to ours where the competition is so stuff and uh, stiff what would be your uh, you know advice or you know learnings what not to do or maybe what to focus more on going forward I'll probably start with the quote that's defined my life it's like two world roads diverged in the woods and i chose the less path and that's made all the difference I think uh, I have to give it to our friend Robert Frost mm -hmm. because I think that has always defined my journey. And I would tell women entrepreneurs to step out of your comfort zone because when you're in your comfort zone continuously, that means you're not growing. So you've got to learn new things, try new things. It's okay to fail. It's not the end of the world. Pick mm -hmm. yourself up and go because the world has got so many things to explore. So I did start from a non-traditional path, right? I started with an engineering degree when there were not a lot of women doing engineering. And then I moved into investment banking when there were not a lot of women in investment banking on Wall Street in New York. So there was even an article that was done which talked about the only woman on Wall Street or something like that in an official capacity. So I've never gone for safe roles. I've gone for things that said, Let's go out and do something different. So I think that's in a part largely shaped my entire career. And I have no regrets as far as trying out new things. Um, it doesn't have to work the first time, but then you keep trying and reaching farther every day so that you reach a little beyond what you started out with. Uh, when it comes to an entrepreneurial journey, I would say, why, you know, we've especially something for Indian women. We've been told when we grew up, at least I've, you know, that not to take a lot of risks. Mm -hmm. And that is also not to question a lot and question authority, because these are two defining things that we learn very young and that's in inculcated in our psyche. And those are probably things that you need for an entrepreneur. So it's counterintuitive. And it's also kind of like choose safe professions, be a teacher, be a doctor, be a nurse, be something that's kind of like more you can come home at a particular time is how we've been groomed uh, psychologically. And that is probably why we're not, uh, we don't see a lot of women entrepreneurs. And I think that even certain things that has happened, including COVID, survey says that there were a lot more entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs that came in in response to that situation because they figured out they could work from home. Mm -hmm. You would also see globally, uh, women entered the workforce only after the war was there. You know, mm -hmm. the world was accelerated women into the workforce because uh, before that, men were working, women were at home and that was a defined role. And with World War, the number of women, uh, you know, the men folk were not coming back 
and we keep the home running and that's when they went into the workforce so that way covid which was a huge crisis beyond proportion accelerated the feeling that women could work from their homes and be entrepreneurs i think that the world is evolving it's changing for good and we will see a lot more women coming into it but my advice is pure and simple it's okay to take risks and even fail it is okay it sh you should definitely work out of your comfort zones because that's when you're learning and the day you stop learning is the day you stop living so you know try thank you, <laughs> thank you for this wise words all right i think uh, you know this has been a very interesting interaction maybe one last question sure. uh, who is jaya outside of bct and where can people get in touch with you you know to learn more get inspired i'm always available for either mentorship or those are things that i'm very passionate about i want to see more women entrepreneurs out just as i wanted india to emerge from the npa crisis and that was a big goal of mine it is also to see more entrepreneurship in general come out of india so any mentoring on the journey i do want to see india more as a product hub not necessarily as a services hub and that was some one of the reasons that i said you know let's start a products company even before it was cool to make in india i think we started with the mantra of saying make in india from local to global that was our tagline uh, this was like 8 9 years ago and uh, now also is the mission to see more women come i emerge out on the entrepreneurial journey so i'm quite available and uh, you know through email through phone to connect on linkedin please do reach out i, I never say no um and outside of uh, workplace i'm quite active <laughs> i i um, do a lot of different things i'm passionate about um, running i'm passionate about i sing professionally i also work with a lot of uh, ngos so those are other passions i have i'm a mom and uh, so those are other avatars of the same person nice jan very 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 interesting very inspiring i think i also learned a lot today uh, i think with this we come to the end uh, of our discussion and very very happy to interact with you anything else that you think we should have added or we should add you know we can just quickly take another question maybe No I'm good thank you so much madhu it was a pleasure interacting with you thank you jaya thank you so much uh, and for all our listeners we will add uh, jaya's link uh, in the uh, note so you can reach out to her directly and if you want to know more about uh, bct digital we will also add the link of the organization there yeah thank you jaya thank you so much for your time and this was thank very you. interesting with you bye bye